All right, open with me to 1 Corinthians 5. Unique passage of scripture that I, I've, I've kind of dreaded preaching to you all day, truth be told. And then, uh, of course, the night that I get to this passage is the first Wednesday night that all the kids are in here. So, parents, have your ears open. I'll do my best to be G-rated, and we'll, we'll go at it. Now the teenagers are like, ooh, what's he going to preach about? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, let's read the entire chapter beginning in verse number 1. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. You are puffed up and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from you. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle, not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or the extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must you needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourself that wicked person. All right, let's pray. Lord, we pray your blessing upon this time. May the words of your scriptures do a work in our hearts. In the power of the Holy Spirit, draw us closer to you. Make us more like Christ. Help us to grow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul writes here, dealing with sin in this church, and already he's um, talked about some divisions that the Corinthian church has. If you're, if you're just joining us, some of you have been working hard in the youth programs through the springtime, and you're here for the summer, and we're glad to have you. So if you're just joining us, you, you might be a little behind in this study here with this idea that the Corinthian church was a very gifted church. In fact, they were super gifted in the, fruit, the, the gifts of the Spirit, it was amazing some of the things that were happening and going on in and around this church. With this, it seemed like they sort of took everything else for granted because they said, yeah, but look how the Holy Spirit does works in our church. And so they had divisions over who was baptized by whom or which preacher they kind of felt like was the better preacher. It was Paul or Apollos or Cephas. Or I was baptized after this guy. And so Paul is saying, don't put your hope in them. Put your hope in Christ. Now he goes further in dealing with the issues for this church. And he says, there's undealt with sin in your church. And so I want to talk to us tonight about dealing with sin in the church. And I want you to notice three headings. A church proud of their sin, a church not judging their sin, and a church not removing their sin. So we begin with verses 1 and 2. And sadly, we see here a church proud of their sin. Paul says it's commonly reported. It is reported commonly 
that there is fornication among you and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. So the gist of what's going on here, a man was committing fornication with his father's wife. I think we're safe to understand this not to be his mother because he doesn't say his mother. He says your father's wife. So uh, half son, stepmother, this kind of situation maybe. We don't know. He doesn't say. But I think if it was a mother, then he would have said that there. But nevertheless, there was a sin being committed here. And I want to remind us that uh, fornication in, in any type is a sin. So God designed um, marriage to be between one man, one woman for one lifetime. Yeah, I'm going to wait because I don't need to preach the rest of this sermon to you if you don't agree with me on that one. And anything outside of that is sinful. We good there? Right? That's, that's common. And why don't we do this tonight because we're going to be going through a lot of information and this can be some hairy stuff. We're just going to do questions. Is that all right? So if you got one as I go along, why don't we just do that? Kind of like Sunday school. Is that all right with everybody? Anybody offended if somebody else asks a question? Because then we can get into how to deal with it. No, I'm just kidding. So, yeah, but if you do, if I'm not clear as we go along, why don't you just kind of let me know? So the problem with this sin was not the sin itself. I mean, the sin was bad enough. But often we'll kind of read the first part of chapter 5 here and be like, oh, this is horrible. I can't believe this was going on, much less going on in the church. Well, let me tell you just straight up. Uh, my own tendency to gossip is just as bad as the sin in chapter 5, verse 1. All right? Everybody good with that? Same thing. It needs to, they, they all have to be dealt with in the church. So don't let the shock value of the sin that Paul's writing about here lead you to think that this is not applicable to our own gathering and our own situation because we would never have that going on in our midst, right? Hopefully not. But the problem Paul says here is you guys have, have kind of become proud that you're sort of tolerant and receiving of sinful behavior. This man is committing this sin. This has been seen even by the outside world. It's sort of commonly reported that this is going on by these people that are part of this church in Corinth. And it's not even a questionable sin. Like You know, there's some things that you may think that are sin that I don't. Or I might think are sinful and, and you don't. Right? Do you understand questionable sins? Anybody who feels like it's a sin to watch TV? Nobody. I was trying to think of one that I wouldn't offend anybody on. You do? Yeah, okay, there's a good one. Dietary laws. Thanks, Cameron. That's a really good example for what we're talking about here. So some people have very strict dietary laws. Do you hold the same ones as him? Does he feel like you're sinning? Do you feel like he's sinning? All right, so yeah, this is the exact example. So we would call that a questionable sin. Any non-pork eaters in here? Yeah, we're a rough bunch. <laughs> so, but this is not that, you understand. This is blatantly a sin, so much so that it says it's not even named among the Gentiles. Now that does not mean to save Gentiles in the church. What Paul is saying there, even among the world around you that are not part of your church, they would consider this a sin. This is not right. You shouldn't, be, you shouldn't be doing this thing. So this was a big deal. It was not a secret. 
This was not gossip. It wasn't like Paul said, somebody told me that this is happening, and when I get there, I'll find out if it's truly happening. No, this was reported actually, and it was reported factually. This is going on. It's happening. He says it's happening among you. It's going on currently within your gathering of the church. We, we in, in our church, will face at times someone who's involved in a sin that I have to go talk to them about or you have to go talk to them about. The first Sunday of the month will roll around, and I give the instructions on the Lord's table. If you're openly practicing sin, not in fellowship with the Lord, you should abstain from the Lord's table, or you should repent of your sin. The goal being, repent of your sin and intend to never do it again and take from the Lord's table with clean hands. Well, we have to deal with that on a regular basis. If we weren't doing that, if we were just publicly serving communion to anybody all the time, well, we'd fall under this same thing. Here's the Corinthian church. As he says here, this is going on currently within your gathering of the church. What he's not saying here is somebody in your church wasn't able to take communion last Sunday because of their sinning, so this Sunday you need to kick them out. It's not what he's saying here. He's saying, you're not even worried about it. It's not even bugging you. You're just you're just letting them practice this and practice being a part of your church on a regular basis. So this church knew about it, and they did nothing. In fact, verse 2 tells us they did more than nothing. He says, you are puffed up. You have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from you. So instead of grieving the sin, this church was proud about it. R.C. Sproul clarifies for us. He says the underlying problem here was not the sin of one individual, but the failure of the Corinthian church to deal with the sin, indeed their sense of pride in tolerating it. This church had become proud of their own tolerance. Now we live in that world. I mean, this is the ancient world, the the early church here. But you and I live in a day and age where even major denominations will make their taglines for their denominations Basically saying this, come one, come all, do whatever you like. We don't care because we're going to focus on love and we're not going to judge you. Now, partially, we would kind of fall in line with that, right? God is gracious. God is loving. And we're glad of that because he's offered us forgiveness for our sins. Where we would part the hairs there, where we would draw the line is God is gracious. God is loving. So you must receive me in my sin. And there's a major difference there. But for whatever reasons, and we'll kind of Sunday morning in the book of Luke, we're going to get to get into some of these reasons. I'll kind of just spill the beans a little bit for you tonight. In Jesus' day, organized religion refused him. Why did organized religion refuse Jesus? Well, they refused him because he was breaking up their system. He was the fulfillment of the things they had gotten so used to doing. So he was changing things. What do you know about good Baptists? Jimmy, we don't like change, amen? Keep it like it is, bless God. Well, Jesus came along and things began to change. And who refused him? Was it the sinful people? Nope. Was it the Romans? No. The Romans said, why do you want us to crucify this guy? It was the the bride of Christ, essentially. It was the Jews, not the bride of Christ. But they would be the, the old covenant saints. That's the right way to say it. And they're refusing Christ and... And you read it, you think, what's the matter with these people? Why are they refusing Christ? Well, simply because he was changing their traditions. 
Their traditions they wanted to cling to. Not the fulfillment of those traditions and the things that he had came to actually bless them with. It was more than this. So we live very much in a, a similar day. Let's just keep on doing like we've always done. Let's not make any changes. And let's just keep right on. And if it means that we have to compromise on some things to do that, well, let's just compromise in the name of love. But did Jesus compromise in the name of love? He did not. Jesus tipped over the tables. Jesus whipped some people. Yes. Yeah, there's nothing new under the sun. No, that's exactly right. So the Corinthian church had become proud here of their tolerance for sin. William McDonald says it this way. He says perhaps they were proud of their tolerance and not disciplining the offender. You know, it'd kind of be like if they were in our day and age, it'd be like, Every other church in our community has run these people off because of their life choices. But we welcome them with open arms. So we're the true church. That would be, this would be how the Corinthian church is operating here. That's not right. The churches that ran them off, now unless they were just mean about it, and we're going to get into this in a minute. Paul doesn't say to be mean, but Paul says you have to be firm in truth. And if they won't repent, well then they do need to be taken away. So... The Corinthian church here, proud of their sins, or maybe proud of the abundance of spiritual gifts in the church to the point of they didn't take serious what was taking place here. Well, yeah, that's going on, but, but look, at, look at all the good works we're doing. That's going on, but look at how we can do these things in the Holy Spirit. Yes, Ben. It's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say for sure in the modern church we have not we don't deem all fornication sinful. Correct. We would say some things were just a product of the culture, and so nowadays we've changed. We're more progressive as a culture. So the culture says these are not sinful. Then the church has to decide: is it still sinful or is it not? Well, how do we decide this? Does the Bible say it's sinful? Yes. So it is. So in this particular sin, we would say one man, one woman, in the marriage relationship for the lifetime, everything outside of that is sinful. Homosexuality, that's sinful. Why? Well, you can get into the, 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 the gender issue there, but you don't even have to get into the gender issue there. It's not a biblical marriage, so there can't be the relations because it's not a biblical marriage. Um, living together prior to being married, that is sinful because you're not married. So you can just go one after the other here. And so the church has tried to get progressive when really we just needed to stay as relevant as we were right there in the scriptures. Now, in this particular context, Ben, I don't know that we're told this. I don't know what their logic would have been there. I think either one of those, though, would be fallible logic. Give them to us again, just so everybody called it. Number one, they said, this is just not a sin, or we're going to ignore the sin. Yeah, right. Now, let's, let's be clear on that point. 
I, I want you to love me even though I sin, and I'm going to love you even though you sin. But I have four sons and a wife that live under my roof. There's very little that they're ever going to do that I'm going to stop loving them. Now, there's things they can do that can affect our relationship. They're, well, I'll just leave it at that. I was going to say there's gross things they do when we're driving in the car that makes me want to kick them out of my car. But, you know, licking the window or something. But uh, that doesn't mean I don't love them anymore. And this is what we're going to get to here in dealing with sin in the church. It's not, we're dealing with it in love. But not dealing with it is not love. That is hate. All right. So, I would say, for the Corinthian church, they were either proud of their tolerance, they were proud of the abundance of spiritual gifts, or maybe they were more interested in, and this would be the more modern church point of view, we're more interested in numbers than holiness. So we're not going to be sufficiently shocked by sin because we don't want to be doom and gloom. We want to be welcoming of everybody because we need to fill up. There's some empty seats here tonight, so we, we need to fill these up. Because then that proves that we're growing, and if we're growing, then God must be blessing. If you've been a part of those models, you'll come to find really quick that human growth and, and, and godly growth are not the same things. Yes, Ms. Carroll? I think mostly Jewish Christians and I think the Corinthian church, I would say, is mostly Gentile. Sure. But he covered that in verse 1. He said, this is not so much as even named among the Gentiles. He said, so the sin that's happening here, though Corinth was a pretty rough town, right? It was Dodge City, right? There were some things going on here that we don't want to talk about. But he says, even in that culture, what's going on in your church isn't even common for them. Brother Homer, did you have something? And, and what, what we see happening psychologically because of that, because we're in the embracing stage, those who are still trying to endure kind of feel mean and is causing bitterness among good Christian people who are just trying to do what the Bible says. And then those who are pitying are kind of stuck between the two. They're kind of in this tug of war. And then some have just fully stepped into embracing, and this, it's just not scriptural. All right, so let's, let's look at Christian liberty real quick. Turn me to Romans 6. Because as we think through this, we, we need to be aware on, so you have the legalistic point of view, you have the antinomian point of view, which is just a fancy word for saying those who live unto sin so that grace may abound, and then you have the middle of the road, which is the place to be. Okay, chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Would you answer that question? Yeah, no, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? All right, now that, that's just a question of logic. How did we get saved? We died out to the old man, and we're alive in Christ, buried with Jesus in his death, risen to walk in newness of life. It comes right here from the book of Romans. So he says, how can we be dead to sin and also be walking in sin. How are you dead to sin and living in it? Well, you can't do both. You're either dead or you're alive. Am I good with that logic? Yeah. All right, skip down to verse 11. 
Likewise, reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments as righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Or may it never be, is, a, is another way you can translate the Greek term there. Know ye not that to whom you yield yourself servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. Now, remember the Corinthians. Right at the beginning, we, we talked about like in chapter 1, Paul said, you've been called to be saints, but you're living like the world. Now, here to the Romans, what is Paul having to say as well? He says, we thank God that we're dead to sin, so why would we continue any longer therein? And we're using this kind of flimsy excuse. Well, I'm under grace. All things are lawful for me. So why don't I just go ahead and sin so that God can keep on forgiving my sin so that the world can see grace abounding in my life and they'll want it too. Does that sound like gospel preaching or used car salesmanship? And there's a huge difference, isn't there? But we kind of sell ourselves mentally on these things. Yeah, but if we sound mean, they won't want to get saved. And won't we just rather be nice to them and look past some things and people not go to hell? And what have we done now for 60 years? We've sent lots and lots and lots and lots of people comfortable in a church pew right into hell they, they sat in church thinking they, the church accepts me I'm as good as any of them I must be alright because somewhere along the line the fear of the Lord went away and people wouldn't put their foot down and people wouldn't say no this is just not right you can't do this alright go back to Corinthians so this church was proud of sin the second thing I want you to notice is this was a church that wasn't judging sin verse 3 for verily, for I verily, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have judged already as though I were present, concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So he begins in verse 3 by saying, I'm judging them. Paul judged the situation. Paul judged the sinner involved here. He says, now I'm not there, but I can easily determine that this is a sin and that it needs to be dealt with. And, and typically with some things, Paul say, when I come, I'll deal with this. When I come, I'll talk to him. When I come out, I will look him in the eyes and I'll, and, I, and I'll deal with this head on. We had that last week, but on this one, he doesn't say that. He says, you guys need to go ahead and deal with this as though I were present. Don't you wait until I come. I've already judged. So he says to the Corinthians then in verse 4 and 5, you should judge. And he tells them here, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together. So gather together under the authority of Christ. Now back up into verse 3 with Paul in spirit. He said, I'm with you in spirit. So he's, in a sense, granting them apostolic authority. So you have Jesus as the authority. You have Jesus' representative, Paul, the apostle, apostolic of authority. And then what does he say to do here? And it's important that you build that case in this regard because what he says to do is pretty harsh. 
He says, when you are gathered together with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 5, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Very serious stuff. Now, we, we need to keep a reminder here that restoration is always the goal when dealing with sin. That's how God treats us. I mean, from Genesis to Revelation, that's been the goal. A redeemer would come and save us from God's wrath and from our sinning. Now, there have been times along the line where God has wiped out mankind, or God has wiped out portions of mankind because of their great sinning. But even in then, you find God's grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God was going to wipe out the earth, but he told Noah to build an ark. And then what did Noah do for 120 years? Before it ever rained, he, he worked on this ark. Peter said of Noah, he said he condemned the world through the building of this ark. What does he mean by that? He means for 120 years, everybody who lived in the vicinity of Noah were able to realize that something cosmic was about to happen. And this guy had had a deity tell him to build a boat to escape it. I think I want to escape that too. Well, then you better start making things right with God. But did anybody do that besides Noah and his family? No. They said, and we're going to put some words in their mouth. No, you're crazy. Building a boat for rain? What is rain? You know, just kind of this, this is not logical. You're, you're, you're odd. You should be doing something productive, Noah. Get with the times. These kinds of things, right? So restoration is always the goal. Often in the church. We get these kind of one-off examples where that wasn't how it was handled or that wasn't the goal. The goal was simply to just exclude or to run off. That should never be the case. So as we think this through, you can, you can almost misunderstand Paul if you think here, well, that's not his goal. He's just saying, kick this person out and let Satan have them. But what's his reasoning for that? That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He's saying, look, this thing has gotten to the point of you don't need to try to restore. You just need to exclude so that they will understand that their spirit needs to be saved. Now, Paul takes the restoration up into eternity. This is a unique verse. I don't know that we have any others like it in Scripture where we read about to deliver such a one under Satan for the destruction of the flesh. MacArthur gives some good insight here. He says it amounts to putting that person out of the blessing of Christian worship and fellowship by thrusting him into Satan's realm, the world's system. And then he says the flesh might be destroyed, refers to divine chastening for sin that can result in illness and even death. Um, we've talked about this before and we've often talked about it and didn't have this proof text before. So we said we think that's in the Bible somewhere, but where is it? Well, this is where it is. There is this principle in Scripture of God killing the body to save you, this, this thing. You know, why do people die young? Sometimes it seem, seems like it's not um, the right thing to do, but often when someone's living a, uh, the path of destruction, there's a way that seems right into a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. There's a way that seems right into a man, the end thereof is the path of destruction. This is a Christian person, or this is someone who was raised... In a Christian home who was taught the right ways, you might see this to be the case. And so this is what Paul is talking about here. Now, I want to give you a note on the point of the church exercising judgment. This man is not going to stop this sin until he's called upon to do so. Sometimes in the normal ebb and flow of life, 
A person will embrace a sin and then stop a sin just through, like, Holy Spirit conviction. But there's a thing that's happened in this church that's going to prevent that. We've got to be aware of this as, our, as the church. What is the thing that's happened that this guy's never going to change his mind until the church does something about it? Anybody? They've accepted it. The moment the church condones, well, why, why do I need to repent? My church says I'm good. It's, it's been surprising to me, given our political, cult, cultural, social climate, to see um, Catholic leaders refusing uh, politicians to the Lord's table. I've, I've just been like, wow. You know, it's, I, I, I think the Catholics are dead wrong on a lot of things, but it's just so surprising that they at least have a standard. It's like, well, great. <laughs> I appreciate you having some, you know, this, this standard. The church must be this way. The moment the church been, begins to condone something, there's never going to be a change. And that's what's happened here in the Corinthian church. So the evil influence in the church must stop. And I would say this is an undesirable process. To call someone, to, to gather the church together, to point at Joe here and say, let me call him John Doe instead of Joe. We have a Joe. I like Joe. <laughs> we, to say John Doe, you can't be doing what you're doing. And, and we as a group... We're kicking you out. You're not welcome here anymore. Nobody wants to do that. Anybody volunteering for that meeting? You, you want to be a part of this? No, we don't want to be a part of this. So with that in our minds, before we move any further here, let's review Matthew 18. Back up with me to Matthew 18. For fear of some of you uh, calling court on Sunday morning, let's remember Jesus' words on how this should be handled. Now, why wasn't this handled this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? Because by the time it got to Paul, the thing was too far gone to handle it the Matthew 18 way. All right, that, that's a good understanding there. So Paul says, here's where we are and here's what you need to do. But in Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15, Jesus gives us some steps here to take when there's someone in the family of Christ who is sinning. So let's make sure we're aware of what should happen here. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, Go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained a brother. All right, so right off the bat, how many people are involved? Two. Two people. And one of those is the one who did the sinning. Clear? So anytime any of us is having a conversation about somebody else's sinning and that person is not there, what are we doing? We're sinning, just to be clear. Any time, 100% of the time. So you, you initially have to go talk to this person. This process fails 100% of the time in the church when that doesn't happen. This, pro, this process, in my opinion and in my observation, works 100% of the time when we start with verse 15. It's crazy how it is. But when you try to go do verse 15 and you say to John Doe, John, me and Bill and Tom have been talking. What's John going to immediately do? He's going to say, well, jerks. I don't hear anything you have to say at this point. So Jesus is clear here. This is what you should do. And if they hear you, you've gained a brother. That would be ideal. But if he will not, verse 16, if he will not hear thee, then take Bill and Joe and John and go talk to your brother. We like to skip step one because you don't want to do this by yourself. You don't want to go to John and say, you're sinning. But you can't skip verse 15. You've got to go ahead and do verse 15. Then you can get to verse 16. 
that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So if you go to your brother and you've addressed his sin and he won't hear you, then you take witnesses with you and hopefully they will hear you. Verse 17, and if he shall neglect to hear them, then you tell it to the church. So after step one and step two, and this person is still living in sin, then we get over to 1 Corinthians 5 where Paul says, when you're gathered together, you, you excommunicate this person from the church. And if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. So two things that we need to make sure we're clear of here. When, you, when they do have this church gathering, even in 1 Corinthians 5, should this person say, you guys are right. I'm stopping this. We're, we're not going to continue this relationship. I want to be right with the Lord more than I want to enjoy my sinning. Then what are we to do? Praise the Lord. This is wonderful. We're, we're glad that this is how things went. If they don't, here's the next part of this. And this is hard for us as Christians. They're not a backslidden Christian at that point. What are they? Look at it. What does he say in verse number 17? Let him be unto you as what? A heathen man and what else? Tax collector. Anybody here work for the IRS? So, sorry to be you. We often want to say, okay, that didn't go well. They didn't respond to it. We're going to keep praying for them. Nope. That's not how it works. You're not supposed to keep praying for them. You're supposed to start treating them like a filthy, rotten, low-down sinner. And not one who's never heard the gospel, not one who is, might be open to Christ, but one who knew it and refused it and went away. And you, you just kind of got to cut them off. Look at verse 11 back in our, uh, in our text. How does he end that verse? With such an one, know not to eat. Funky wording there from the Greek to the English, but basically he's saying, don't have meals with this person. Okay? Can, can I go ahead and be a little legalistic? can't be having meals with them you probably shouldn't be having emails and texts and facebook posts and all the rest yes karen yeah yeah and matthew had to write that down hey but he repented he got out of that business right all right so knowing what the the process is for matthew 18 then we step into first corinthians 5 Paul is just saying, you guys are kind of past all this, and you've got to deal with this sin because it's commonly reported among you. Everybody good to that point? Any questions? Any objections? Anybody point out something I've missed so far? Yes? I think it's okay to try to evangelize them and to pray for their salvation. But this whole thing in Christianity of um, trying to treat them like they're probably saved, they're just not on the right path right now, like we, you, kinda, you have to draw a line there. Like some cultures would draw like a shunning line, like we're not going to look at them, we're not going to talk to them and all of this. I, I don't know that we have to go that far in our culture. And then you get into this whole thing of like, uh, what's, there's a word here for this person. What is the word I can't think of? The person who's gone away from the faith. They're called a, an apostate. So that, that gets into a whole different thing. And I didn't come with my guns loaded to talk to you about how to deal with an apostate tonight. But I'll, I'll say generally in scripture, I believe, and some of you might have better information than me on this, but I believe the scriptural um, 
take on that is you just just kind of leave them be. Anybody have confirmation for me there or disagree me with me there? Did that answer your question, Miss Carol? Yeah. So so, but let's hope we never get there. So don't skip verse fifteen. Matthew eighteen fifteen. When you go to somebody one on one with the not mean, not mad, you have a broken heart. You realize that they're choosing sin over salvation. You're, they're choosing sin over relationship with Jesus. And you say, look, this has got to get fixed. It's rare that this person chooses their sin. Now, does that mean they never slip and fall again? No. If you've ever dealt with somebody addicted to something, they may be as repentant as repentant can get. And three days later, you might catch them doing that sin again. And you may have to, Matthew 18, 15, all over again. The only time you bring the witnesses in is when they say, no, I'm not repenting, or you're not right, or this is not sin. So you hope you, 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 never, you never want to get to this point in things. All right. Uh, Warren Wiersbe says, while Christians are not to judge one another's motives or ministries, we are certainly expected to be honest about each other's conducts. Now, how, why would we not judge somebody else's motive or ministry? That's an important thing there. You don't know their heart. God will do that judging on the last day. Wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, precious stones. You, you, you can examine their attitudes. You can examine their actions. But you cannot examine their motives because only God, man looks on the outside, only God sees the heart. It's possible for a person to be doing good work with a bad motive. I'll, I'll profess, I'll publicly confess sin there. My wife has called me on this before. Is preaching a good work? Can you think of any bad motives that preachers have decided to do some preaching? All right, money. I haven't figured that part out yet. You helped me with that, though. <laughs> yeah, it could be money. It could be they like to get up in front of people and talk. Pride. There's a lot of bad motives there. So what the point being there, it's hard for you and I to know, isn't it? You, get, you hope <laughs> that I have the right motive. In, in getting up here and preaching to you there, but you can't judge that. But you can judge their actions, and you can judge their attitudes. But we live in this mentality of that we should never judge. Well, Matthew 7, when he talks about judge not lest you be judged, he's talking about judging their motives there. And he, he gets into this whole, like, they've got this speck in their eye, and you've got this telephone pole sticking out of your eye there. You need to get that taken care of first before you can deal with their speck. And I love the comedy of that because you're sitting there talking to them and you're trying to help them get the speck out of their eye and the whole time your telephone pole is smacking them. Whack, whack, whack. And Would you just leave me alone? The speck wasn't nearly as bad as these bruises and knots I have all over my head now. And often that's how it is when as well-meaning Christians with our Bibles, we know, we know what it says. Hallelujah. I want to rightly divide the word on you. Maybe not always on me, but I want to do it to you. And we're just beating them to death with that telephone pole. Be careful when you're judging people's motives. It's possible to do a good work with a bad motive. It's possible to fail and still be sincerely motivated. Just because someone fails or does a poor job or, or is just stupid. Anybody know any just dumb people? That doesn't mean they're sinning. It just means they did the best they could with what they had and you know, they tried to be 100 water, and God made them 15 watts. That's just where they are in life, right? And, and, and I, I, you think I'm being offensive here, but my point is, some of you know 100,000 more times about something than I do. 
And if I was to come try to help you, you would along the way say, like, this guy's kind of dumb in regards to this. And there's things I know more about than you do and all of that. So we must be very careful in trying to judge somebody's motives. Because when we stand before the judgment seat, Christ is going to examine the hearts. And he will reward us accordingly. That's when that's going to happen. Next thing I want us to understand here is we think about this chapter 5, verse 4 and 5, delivering one to Satan, excommunicating them from the church. So what does that actually look like? Chuck Swindoll lays it out piece by piece, what it means to put someone out of the fellowship of the church. So the problem we run into here is, like, where's the verse that says, you, you have to join the church and be a member? Anybody? That doesn't exist. I tricked all of you. Got you to do something that wasn't biblical. I got you to join the church. Now we know, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is. We know a lot of verses that talk about how it's important to be joined together with other Christians, to fall under each other's accountability, each other's authority, to share things in common. All of these things, we've kind of designed this system where you attend a church, then you join the church, and then you're under the authority of that church, and that church can, can exercise these things on you in that regard. But there's no scripture that says that's exactly how to do it. Then you get into, well, then when we excommunicate somebody, other than it's saying treat them like a heathen and a tax collector, what does that actually mean? Well, there's some things we find in Scripture here. In chapter 5 here, verse 2, he says, You are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. So they're no longer regarded as a brother and sister in Christ. That's similar to Matthew 18. Then they are removed from the blessing of the Lord's table. Chapter 10, verse 16, he talks about the Lord's table there. And this would be something you for sure, if you know someone has dirty hands, you're not going to let them eat. And this, this is the idea there. Um, they're excluded from receiving benevolent help from the church. And this gets sticky when they have kids. You know, John Doe is in sin and he won't repent. And his poor wife and kids, you know, the electricity's off and... It's hot outside, and the food's rotting in the fridge. What do we do? So, you, you know, that's um, I don't, I didn't, I didn't pose that as if I had the answer to that question. I'm just saying that can get, can get very sticky there, right? But the sinner, for sure, is removed from the benevolent help of the church. Let me put this in, the, in a different light for you. When these types of things become the regular practice of the church, there will be a renewed fear of God. There will be such a tendency to avoid sin because you want to avoid all of this that you won't have to deal with all the stickiness. People will just kind of operate with this holy fear of the Lord in regards to their sinning versus people nowadays who just say, I'm going to sin that grace may abound, and if they judge me, I'm going to go to the church down the street. It's very problematic. They are excluded from the spiritual protection offered through the presence of the Holy Spirit in the congregation. There is something about this tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. That's Second Thessalonians 3.3. 3. Next, an excommunicated believer would be ejected into Satan's domain, which is the world, where they would be outside the spiritual protection of the church and unable to repel the attacks of Satan, 1 Peter 5, 8. Paul even goes so far, we talked about in verse 11 here, don't even have a meal with him. That, that one's hard. What if it's a man's wife who's committed a sin and won't repent? Does he not have dinner with her at home? Or wife with husband either way? Probably in that regard we would say, you let the marital rules apply first. 
husbands being subject, not husbands being subjected to your wives, wives being subjected to your husbands. Yeah, you liked that one, didn't you, ladies? Man, finally a misquote that went really against me there. Um, but there's some strict guidelines here. There's some strict rules on what this should and shouldn't look like. Now, in all of this, remember, this is not the goal. We're not trying to line some people up and say, here's the people who are not going to have food and communion with, and here are the people we are. You know, did you, do, did, you, did you guys ever do this on the playground in elementary school? These are my friends, and these are not my friends. It seemed like the girls were always doing that kind of a thing. And you, as, as a guy, you felt good if you were on the list. And then if you weren't on the list, you said, I don't care about any of that. It's stupid. I'm going to go play football with my friends. This is not what is happening here. This is simply saying, when it gets to this point, there's something the church should have already done or at least needs to do. All right. The goal is restoration. The goal is no more sinning. The goal is forgiveness and cleansing. But without such harsh judgments, we have no motivation for the repentance. So, a church proud of sin, a church that doesn't want to judge sin, and then finally, a church that's not removing sin. And we get an illustration in verses 6, 7, and 8. He says, Your glorying is not good. Know you not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So, a very common biblical phrase, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's used positively and it's used negatively in Scripture, depending on the situation and what it's used in. We understand this illustration best with yeast. You put a tiny, tiny, minute amount of yeast with a whole lump of dough, and what does it do? You got yeast rolls, and they're nice and big and fluffy, and it's great, right? It's a good thing. So if that's in the negative sense, if you didn't want them to be that way, well, look at what that little bit did to that whole lump. Or if it's in the positive sense, so a little bit of sinning can ruin a whole congregation. A little bit of zeal can encourage a whole congregation, right? A little leaven leavens the whole lump in the positive or the negative. Here it is used in the negative. A little bit of sin will hurt the entire church. So here he's given yet one more reason that the church must deal with sin. What's the word in verse 7? Purge. There needs to be a purging. Purge out the old leaven so that you all could be a new lump. Restore the one who has sinned. Have a pure church. Have a pure testimony for Christ in your community. Or even protect the other believers from being influenced toward evil by the offender's example and the church's condoning of their complacency. Then in verse, the end of verse 7 there, he says a unique thing. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. That thought continues in verse number 8. Therefore, let us keep the feast. So he's connecting some imagery there of removing the old leaven of the immoral person from the church to the imagery of Christ's death. He is our Passover, having been sacrificed on the cross. So we have this image then of the Passover supper. The Jews in Egypt were delivered from death by the application of the blood of the Lamb, Following the application of the blood of the lamb, the Jews would eat this Passover dinner. What was one of the requirements in that Passover dinner? Unleavened bread. Right? So there's the connection that he is making there. The, the bread of the feast was to be just kind of flat and just sort of hard. It wasn't fluffy and soft. Well, leaven illustrates sin. It's small, but it's powerful. 
It works secretly to puff up the dough. I think that's unique based off of verse number two. You are puffed up. The sin has got into your church. You're almost proud of it. And that's what leaven is supposed to do there. The church must get rid of this sin. He calls it malice and wickedness here in verse number eight. There was a great deal of division, hard feelings among the the members of the Corinthian church. We talked about that already. Well, I'm of Paul, where I'm of Apollos. Well, Paul's better than Apollos. No, he's not. That's happening in our church. Happens in the church down the street. I just don't like them, and I'm just going to have to deal with not liking them. That's not right. It can't be like that. So he says here, keep the feast. Now, he's not saying you need to be having the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He's saying you need to be having the feast that that represents. He set up under the Old Covenant this Passover, representing the blood of the Lamb would atone for your sins. Are we trusting in that to go to heaven? No, we're trusting in the true Lamb of God who really shed his blood to take us to sin. And I also want you to eat some unleavened bread that night to represent that there's no leaven involved here. Was that what we're supposed to keep doing? Is that going to fix the problems in the Corinthian church? No. What feast are they to keep then? The feast, he says, of sincerity and truth. That's the feast you must keep. You must daily be feasting or rejoicing on Christ and with Christ, in Christ, with no evil in us, especially that toward other people. And then in verses 9 through 13, he closes this out with some clarification. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to, accomp- not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners, extortioners or with idolaters, for then you must needs go out of the world. And I, and I like this. I'm glad Paul says this, and I'm glad he says it this way. He said, I, I'm, I'm saying to you to avoid fellowship with fornicators in the church, not the unsaved who are in the world. That would be impossible. He says, to do that, you'd have to go out of the world. Have you watched TV lately? Paul is right. And so he says, that's not what I meant. In fact, I think his tone could be interpreted here as, that's really going to affect your evangelism if you can never be around sinners. If you've got to seclude yourself totally from anybody who ever does anything unbiblical, then you're never going to reach them with the gospel. And we're to be reaching them with the gospel. In fact, we were commanded to reach the world with the gospel before we were ever told to deal with a brother or sister in Christ in sin. One precludes the other. We have to do both, but one is primary and one has to be secondary in that regard. It's not a secondary issue, though. Please don't misunderstand me. Chuck Swindoll says we're not called to force our biblical standards of righteousness on those outside the church who have never been taught and have never committed themselves to a life of discipleship. I used to hear preachers say, you can't clean fish till you catch them. You get the idea. If we're not careful as the Christians, we'll be exercising chapter 5 on people who aren't even saved. As if, if they'd quit their fornicating, they could, they could be right with God and go to heaven. It's not how it works. Is that how it worked for you? God tell you to give up some sins so that you could get saved? It doesn't work that way at all. If we earn grace by works, then grace is no more grace. It's by grace that you've been saved. God's unmerited favor. It's not of yourselves. If so, then we could be boastful, and we can't be boastful. Verse 11 then, he says, But now I've written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, 
or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such and one know not to eat. So it's not the world, the unsaved, that you must stay away from. It's those practicing these sins in the church that you mustn't maintain fellowship with. He says, don't, don't even eat with them. And, and I don't think there's necessarily, there is a connection there because the early church would do, uh, a good word for it would be love feasts. They would take the Lord's table and in correlation for the love he had for them so that they could be saved, then they would show their love to each other by sharing food together and they would call that a love feast. We would call that an added dish in our church. Love feast sure sounds better, doesn't it? But all of that beats potluck. That's what the Lutherans do, potlucks. I don't want to eat anything that I have to be lucky in to see how it's going to come out. So I like add a dish. So somewhat there's that, that case there. But, but I think the idea here is not so much can I go down to Donna's and have pie with them. I think the idea is should I be in fellowship with this person anymore? Whether that's eating, drinking, playing golf, going fishing, sewing club, whatever it is. And, and no, we're not supposed to. Now, I want to note to you here, and I'm done, and I'll close up, but I, I want to note specific sinners that Paul does list here. And then this is not to exclude any other sinners. I was having a fornication discussion with, uh, I shouldn't have paused there. I was having a discussion about fornication with a, with a brother recently, and he looked at my belly and said, well, gluttony's a sin too. And I said, you're exactly right. And so... For sure, but there is a there is some information that we must gain from this. So Paul first pulls out the the fornicator, which would be the sexually immoral. Anybody who's just avoiding anything but just married married people, boring old male female marriage, man, we're just fuddy duddies, aren't we? So the fornicator. Then he talks about the extortioner. Who knows what an extortioner is? Yeah, maybe. I thought of mafia. Like, that's where my brain went, was like mafia. I guess a black mullet should go. So the, the Greek word that we pull an English extortioner from is defined this way. One who carries off the possessions of another by force. A robber, a plunderer, a swindler. So whoever you need that to be. The extortioner, the covetous. These are the greedy, the excessively desiring, desirous of acquiring more. The idolater, those given over to the worship of anyone or anything other than the true God. The railer. This is a slanderer. This is one who attacks the reputation of another by libel, defamation. And then the drunkard, one who habitually drinks alcohol to the excess of intoxication. So Paul lists all of these here in the world and in the church, verse 10 and in verse 11. He does add from verse 10 down to verse 11, the drunkard and one other. What's the other that he adds in there? Is it Rayler? Yeah. The drunkard and the railer, he adds in from 10 to 11, maybe something there. But I just wanted to fill out Paul's point there in defining these sin, sin, sin behaviors or sinful people. Before you stop having meals with anyone who ever sins, note Paul's meaning here. Avoid fellowship with Christians who their life openly, regularly contradicts the faith. This is not an instruction that... Somebody messes up one time and you're just like, that's it. <laughs> no, he says this is somebody who is just full on living a wicked life but trying to call themselves a Christian. The, the Corinthians, I think, would have been guilty of holding to the liberty side of this. 
Let's sin so that grace may abound. He said, you're, 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 you're puffed up. You're kind of proud that you've accepted this vile thing into your church here. But I think we must avoid holding to the legalistic side of this. Not everybody who drinks alcohol is a drunkard. Not everyone who ever says an untoward thing would be called a railer. Someone who gets a little bit too much into something is not directly an idolater. Just because somebody wants more from life, bigger house, better car, that doesn't make them covetous, does it? No, of course not. Not everybody who's forceful in business is an extortioner. I'll tell you, the church historically is rough on the businessman. We, we want his money. And we need the guy who, he's good at business, he's a shark. But at church, we want him to kind of keep to himself and not be on the board or in leadership because he might be unholy because he might do things that are mean. Because we've heard about he's kind of mean in business. I have a friend locally. He doesn't go to our church. He's a lawyer. I think he's a good guy. But I've heard from multiple people, they'll say, he's mean. That's the lawyer I want to hire then, right? I don't want a nice lawyer. Do you want a nice sheriff? I don't even want a sheriff who walks the line. Like, I want a sheriff who's willing to just shoot somebody, whether he's justified or not. Just don't, don't take any chances here. All right, I got one amen on that and a bunch of you looking at me cross-eyed there. Okay, that was a little bad. I missed one here. There's one I didn't talk to you about. Oh, the fornicator. I got the drunkard down through the fornicator there. We must avoid impure thoughts and looks. But that's still a long way from being a practicing fornicator. The point being here, we must be slow in these types of things. And start with Matthew 18. One-on-one, if they won't repent, go with witnesses. If they won't repent, then bring it to the church. Verse 12 and 13, then he says, For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not you judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourself that wicked person. Sproul says, The church has authority to exercise discipline within its own fellowship, not to regulate the behavior of non-Christians. MacArthur adds, Those on the outside are for God to judge, and believers are to evangelize. Those who sin on the inside, the church is to put out. So, What do we take away from this? Christians must avoid sexual immorality, including adultery, homosexuality, pornography, and any other deviant sexual behavior. The church must stand guard against such corrupting influences, and we must be willing to discipline members if necessary, while at the same time grieving over the sins. That's what he said in verse 2. He said, you're puffed up, but you should be mourning. Grieving over the sins for the sake of the church's spiritual health and of the sinner who's find their path moving toward destruction. All right. I'm finished. Are there any other questions? You guys asked questions up until 6.30 or 7.30. Once we got over what you thought was the time limit, you stopped asking me questions. Yes, Brother Homer. I tried to call in sick tonight. They wouldn't let me. Ben, Yes. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think at that point you just start treating them like an unbeliever. Yep. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You go back to the primary calling, which is go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, and you're trying to make a disciple out of them. And part of making a disciple out of them is they're going to have to move on from this sinful behavior. I think the sphere of influence we have in this regard is obviously our church family. That's the biblical instruction. And then we have the nuclear family, our blood relatives, maybe even just our close kin that we're sort of responsible to in this regard. Ms. Connie? Yes. Yeah, the prodigal son had to go to the far country to get in the hog pen to, to spend up his living. When that was all done, he returned to the father's house where it was nice and clean and safe. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Sure. I think one thing we need to be clear on in that regard in the church is most people, you know, we, we've set the situation up where you're looking up here. So when we talk about this in the church, who should be keeping the church pure? Well, they, well, that's the preacher's job. But that's not how the biblical example goes. It, it's your job to go to other Christians who you're finding in sin. And I know that's uncomfortable, and it's easier to delegate that out. And I, I'm up here saying I'm glad that it's the other way. I get to delegate it out to you. So don't get me wrong here. I'm, I'm doing this out of convenience sake. But I have to do this to my own friends who I find in sin, and they have to do this to me when they find me in sin. We're not looking for sinless perfection. I don't want to go to that church. I hope you don't either. But like Miss Connie's saying, I also don't want to go to the church where we just say, oh, well, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Anybody else? All right. Well, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time together. It's a touchy subject, but we're thankful that you gave us clear instruction on it. Help us to remember that some things are clearly listed as sin in the Bible, where some things maybe are culturally frowned upon or even questionable sins. 
So as we navigate those waters, I pray that we would be gracious. I pray that we would stick to the word and that we let your Holy Spirit guide us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good night. Yep, VBS is scheduled.